Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. Welcome to our 12 o'clock service. I'm expecting more out of you today. I'm telling you. It's, uh, I think, you know, last year we voted about uh, daylight savings time. I'm not sure it's going to amount to anything, but um, I think if we vote, like, what we should do is have a bill that every Sunday you get an extra hour of sleep. I think that'd just be awesome. <laughs> we can work that out. It feels so rested. It was great. Uh, my name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. If it's your very first time, I want to welcome you. Uh, before we go into our time of teaching, just one thing I want to make you aware of. You know, uh, yesterday we just did the All Serve. Thank you so much for being a part of that. What an amazing event. Um, and, uh, but uh, also, I um, want to thank you for the latest generosity initiative. You know, um, about a month ago, someone in our church pr- uh, approached me, just had this, this idea. We just really felt like the Lord was in it of, of kind of collecting winter coats for uh, homeless. And uh, we just jumped on that. Last week, you brought them in. And uh, I wanted to give you good news that we collected about 1,900 uh, winter coats um, of all different, for all different ages. And on top of that, there was about 600 other items of clothing that were kind of uh, cold weather gears, like sweatshirts and things like that. So it was a total of 2,500 pieces of clothing. And so, Anna, thank you for participating in that. Um, but right now, we're going to go into our time of teaching. And so inside your program is a green and white message note sheet today, uh, as there always is. And, and you may know this, but if you're new here, you may not. So you'll, you'll definitely want to take that out. And if you all are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, great. Just wanted to check. All right. It's like, no, we're not ready. We are now over sleep logged. We can just like, let's pray together. Father, we're just thankful to be here in your place and thank you for your leadership in our lives, for your life, your death, your resurrection, and the gift of your spirit who comes each week as our teacher to unpack your word and to speak life into us, challenge, rebuke, hope, encouragement correction that leads us in the path to life. And so we pray today that you'd be speaking loud and clear, and that as always, we would be your people hanging on your words with a listening heart that we would listen and follow. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, our story starts today late at night, and he's uh, having a hard time sleeping. He tried to go to bed early because tomorrow is a big day. He's been planning this event for months. The logistics have been staggering. But tomorrow's a big day. It's the start of a new era. And frankly, the last couple of years have been tough. They've been uh, years of conspiracy, of intrigue, of drama, even danger, violence. But he's survived it all. He's come out on top. And now there's this big event to celebrate the future, to prepare for the future. Because the, the fact of the matter is, though he's won and though he's come out on, ta- on top, then now he's got to deal with what he's won. And uh, I don't know in your life if you've ever been in a new leadership role of some kind where you're not sure you're up to the challenge. It may be as, as simple as just parenting for the first time. It may be uh, something on a company, on a team. You've, you've been chosen to be captain. And you're just not sure that you have what it takes. And that's where he's at. He's following a gifted leader, a leader that's had so much success, so popular. And now he's trying to step into his shoes. shoes and frankly, he's not sure he has what it takes. And that's why he's planned this huge, huge event. That's why he's organized this. This is why he's called everyone together. So the invitations have gone out. The RSVPs are in. All the VIPs will be there. The crowds will be there. And the question is, 
Will it work? Well, today we're continuing uh, this series we've been in the last two or three weeks. It's called Prophets, Priests, and Kings, Life Lessons from the Kingdom of Israel. And uh, uh, if you're new, uh, what we're doing in this series is we're, we're zooming in on t- 10 key events, t- 10 turning points in the story of Israel, specifically in what I'm calling the kingdom era, an era that starts with the rise of the first king, King Saul, about a thousand years before Jesus, and lasts for over four centuries to the last king of Israel, a king by the king of, uh, name of King Zedekiah, who is ruling over Jerusalem when it's besieged, brutally assaulted, and destroyed in 586-587 BC. And so this is the era of what I, I like to call the prophets, priests, and kings. And what we're doing is we're focusing on 10 of these key turning points in this larger story, uh, not only to better understand the story of Israel, not only to understand the, the big picture story the Bible is telling for all of creation, but specifically to look at some of the, the most important life lessons that we learn from the lives of these key leaders to inform us and help us learn how to, to grow, to thrive, to follow Jesus in our own life. Now, if you were here last week, Last week, we focused on the rise of the greatest king in Israel's history, King David. And if you were here, you remember that we looked at some of the epic promises that God made to him about his line, about this line of kings, the dynasty of kings that would come, about the future of the nation, and so on. And one of the promises that God made uh, to David is unlike his predecessor, unlike King Saul, who was removed from the throne, but also his whole family was cut off from the throne, unlike that, that God made the promise that one of his own sons would rule after him, and that he would be, uh, that God would be a father to him, he'd be a son to God, um, and that God would shepherd him, and that he would be the one who would build a house for God's name, build the temple. And so sure enough, God keeps that promise, and after David dies, David's sixth son, his name is Solomon, rises to the throne, and he's gonna lead the nation to a time of unprecedented peace and power. In fact, it's going to be a time of prosperity so great that the nation will always look back to the era of David and Solomon as the golden age of their nation. And so today we wanna take a look at one of the key turning, uh, turning points in his life. But before we jump in, we're gonna need some significant backstory. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called Solomon's Rise, the backstory. So let's jump in. So when David is old, he's actually very old, very infirm, beginning to be decrepit, that uh, he, everyone knows he's gonna die soon. And he has talked to his wife Bathsheba, one of his wives named Bathsheba, and he has promised her that their son they had together, Solomon, will be the next king. But this is undercover, not everyone knows this. And so right before he dies, David's fourth son, his name is Adonijah, makes a play for the throne. He, uh, he orchestrates a coup. He gathers some military leaders, some religious leaders, political leaders, the army, and he's gonna make a play for the throne. Fortunately, uh, David gets wind of this. The prophet Nathan comes to Bathsheba and says, hey, you better do something fast, you're gonna lose the kingdom. So David acts quickly, foils the plot, and publicly announces his son Solomon to be the next king. And so after David dies, Solomon is, is, the, the, is the king, but he, he's gonna need to root out all rebellion, all those who are, who are backers of Adonijah. And so he's gonna ruthlessly, over the next couple of years, kind of kill and, and wipe out those who are his enemies. Now, quick sidebar here, this is so important. It's so important when we read the Old Testament that we realize that the Bible is an incredibly 
honest book. The other day, I got an email from someone saying, why did God do this in the book of Judges? And uh, the answer is, God had nothing to do with that. That the Bible is just telling you what happened. It's not authorizing what happened. And so when you see Solomon ruthlessly eliminate his uh, competitors for the throne, it's not saying, hey, this was good or wise or true. It's just saying, this is what happened. So after about two years of that, Solomon is now the uh, uncontested king. Uh, he is now ready to rule the nation, but this takes us back to the story we started the day with. The story of this young man late at night, thinking about this big event that he's worked on for months to, to orchestrate. All the top leaders of the nation, the VIPs are gonna be there, the people are gonna be there. This is a story from the life of Solomon. So at this point, he has ruthlessly eliminated his competition. He's solidifying his reign, but now that he's on top, he wonders if he has what it takes to lead this nation. He is following an incredible leader, King David, so successful, so loved. Does he have what it takes? I think we've probably all been there at some point in our life. Do we have what it takes? And so he orchestrates this big event where he's gonna call the entire nation to come to one of the most important high places that's near Jerusalem. Remember, this is before there's a temple. So the most popular high place where you'd worship God, a high place closer to the heaven, you'd worship God, was at a place, a little town called Gibeon. It was seven miles to the north and the east of Jerusalem. So he calls the whole nation there, the, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle is there. And he calls a nation there, and it's this huge event. All the military leaders, tribal leaders, judicial leaders, uh, spiritual leaders, and then the people are there. And they, they come together for this big celebration, like an inauguration event, to pray for God's blessing on his kingdom. And so as they come, the Bible doesn't describe all the details, but it sounds like it was a huge event with worship and prayer and so on, because one of the things it does tell us is that Solomon offered, catch this, a thousand sacrifices that day. Tremendous expense. And that night, as he, as he goes to sleep, God comes to Solomon in a dream. It's the very first time. It's going to happen twice. And he comes to him for the first time, and God says, I've heard your prayer. And he says, I want to answer it. In fact, he makes this incredible offer that he doesn't make to anyone else in all biblical history. He says, what do you want? I'll give you what you've, you've sought my face. What do you want? Kind of giving him like the American Express black card. Whatever you want. And, uh, and so he doesn't get three wishes rubbing the lamp, but he gets one wish. And so uh, he asked for something amazing. He asked for what's described in the NIV version, New International Version, he asked for a discerning heart, right? He says, I feel like a kid in my dad's big shoes. I, I don't feel up to this task. I don't know what I'm doing. And so what I need is a discerning heart to be able to discern between right and wrong and how to lead and bring judgment as the king on this nation. Now, what's really interesting is as beautiful as that request is, it is even more beautiful in Hebrew. Because in Hebrew, where it says a discerning heart, what it literally says is a hearing heart. The, the word in Hebrew is the word shema. For from those, some of these you got into Israel, you know, we memorize this, or maybe a Jewish background. Uh, the shema in Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That very first word is shema. What's interesting is in Hebrew, in Hebrew, the word to listen or to hear and the word to obey are the same word. 
To listen is to obey. We haven't really heard until we've obeyed. Or as we say here, we listen and then follow. And so what he asks for is a listening heart. God, would you give me a listening heart, a hearing heart? I want to hear from you. I want to discern what's right. I want to follow it. It's a beautiful request. And God is so impressed. He says, because you didn't ask me for what most people would ask me, you didn't ask for wealth. You didn't ask for power. You didn't ask for victory over your foreign enemies. You didn't ask for uh, fame. You didn't even ask for a long life. He said, because of that, I'm going to answer what you did ask for. I'm going to make you the most, the wisest person who's ever lived. I'm going to fill your life with wisdom, but I'm also going to give you everything you didn't ask for. I'm going to give you the wealth. I'm going to give you the power. I'm going to give you the fame. And he said, and if you follow me all your life loyally, I will give you a long life. And so, uh, so Solomon's reign starts very strong. Over the next 20 years, God's going to bless him in every way. He gives him this tremendous wisdom. And so Solomon's wise, not just like spiritual wisdom, but life wisdom. He, uh, he, he's going to enter into military alliances with the nations around Israel to protect their uh, country. He's going to have military victory and bring peace to the nation. He's going to have economic, uh, just economic growth like crazy. He's going to establish new trade routes. He's going to invest in a ship of sailing, uh, sailing fleet. Um, so that he can import and export uh, new items. He's going to, going to launch new administrative systems to, to run the government. He's going to launch major building projects uh, to, to build incredible uh, public works. And so Solomon is going to be blessed over the next 20 years in every way. In fact, there in your note sheet, you have a, a couple uh, excerpts from early in his reign from the author of Kings, kind of summary statements. And he says, during the reign, and the first one, 1 Kings 4, the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, they were happy. As, and Solomon ruled all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River. So the Euphrates River runs through like northern Syria and then down into Iraq. And he says, from that part down, uh, Solomon ruled over the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines. So they conquer the Philistines, like Goliath and all the Philistines. Those are the cities on the Mediterranean coast of Israel. Uh, and then all the way to the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute. In other words, they, they were vassal states. They had admitted his superiority. They were under his control. They would send tribute to him uh, all, all his life. And then the next passage. That God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight, a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East. In another passage, it says that Solomon wrote 3,000 Proverbs. Of course, we have many of those in our book of Proverbs. And it was greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. For uh, from all the nations, people came to hear Solomon's wisdom. So remember this, this is not a day and age where you have podcasts or books or websites. And so if you want to hear this wisdom, you have to send for it. And so people from all over the world will come to listen to his wisdom. And they're sent by the kings of the world. The kings would send uh, ambassadors to go learn from Solomon in return. 
who had heard of his wisdom. And so one of the most uh, important public projects that he invests in, of course, is building the temple. Remember last week, God had told David, your son will build a house for me. And so so Solomon engages. Amazing project. It's going to take seven years. Lots of time. Lots of money. Lots of ingenuity. They're going to import timber all the way from Tyre. They're going to open up stone quarries and quarry there. He's going to have to conscript lots of people. And so it takes seven years to make this amazing place, this place where God, where, where the hope is that this will be the place where God shows up, where the presence of God will be revealed, where a place where heaven meets earth. And so after seven years, they have this amazing dedication ceremony. Uh, the, the nation is there. All the VIPs are there. We're about 20 years into his reign. He's going to be going 40 years, we're about halfway there. And so, so the VIPs are going to be there. Uh, the priests are going to be there. Uh, they're going to have choirs and singing and worship. And the ark of God will be marched into the new temple. And sacrifices will be offered. And the fire of God is going to come down on the sacrifice. And the glory of the Lord is going to fill the temple. Like remember back in the, in the tabernacle when it was built in the wilderness. And after it was done in Exodus 40, the spirit of God came in and filled the presence. And in the same way, the, the Spirit of God descends upon the temple, and the smoke and the glory is so great, the priest can't even go inside. And so he offers, Solomon offers this amazing prayer, God, would you meet us at this place? May this be your house. Would you put your name, your presence, your identity, would you meet us here? And when we pray and we ask for forgiveness, would you forgive us here? And we seek your face, would you reveal yourself here? And would you bring people from all over the world here to know the true and living God? And it's an amazing day. And that night, 20 years into his reign, God shows up to answer his prayer. And God shows up a second time. And this time he says, I've heard your prayer. And I'm going to answer your, and I am going to make my presence known in this place. And I will put my name here. This is a place kind of where heaven is going to meet earth. I'm going to put my name here. And he, he answers all his prayer. He says, but, and he gives him a very clear warning. He says, however, he says, if you ever um, if you ever uh, compromise your loyalty to me, if you ever break the covenant that Israel in, entered into at Mount Sinai, you began to worship other gods. Remember the first two commandments, no other gods and no idols. If you ever begin to do that, he said, then you will lose this land and this temple will be rejected and destroyed and it will become an object not of blessing, but an object of mock and ridicule for the nations. And so with that, um, God just responds in such a beautiful way. Yes, I'll be here. Yes, I'll manifest my presence here. Yes, I'll meet with you. And so when you get to the 20-year mark of Solomon's reign, I mean, we are trending up. He has become the wealthiest man in the world. He is the wisest man in the world. People are coming from all, the nation is thriving. It's growing on Precedent peace and prosperity. In fact, in chapter 10, this is how the author describes this era. He says, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. And year after year, everyone who came brought a gift. Articles of silver, gold, robes, weapons, spices, horses, mules, 
Now, the next thing I want you to pay special attention here, especially to the numbers here, said Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. So remember, in that day, chariots and horses were weapons of war. A chariot in that era was like a tank in our era. It was a, it was a, a military, it was a way to safeguard your nation. And so Solomon begins to build up his military force. And so he accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots, and he had how many horses? Okay, I want you to circle that, put a star by that. This will become important later on. Okay, and so, uh, and he said he kept these in the chariot city. So we know that Solomon had three chariot cities. For those of you who have been to Israel, you may remember this. On the very first day there, we go to Gezer in the south. So he had one in the south, a chariot city, like military fortresses, military uh, compounds, kind of like a Camp Pendleton or something like that, right? So he's got like uh, Gezer in the south, he's got Megiddo in the middle, and then he's got Hatzor in the north. We got a two of those three. And so he builds these chariot cities, um, and he also keeps some in Jerusalem. Now, the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. And cedar, remember cedar's imported, had to be imported, as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Now, Solomon's horses were imported from where? Can circle that, that'll become important later on. So he imports these from Egypt, uh, they weren't indigenous in the land, and from Ku. And the royal merchants, they purchased them from Ku at the current market price. <laughs> Just kind of threw that in. All right, so what I want you to catch, we're 20 years into his reign. He starts strong, asks God for wisdom. God says, I'm throwing in not only wisdom, everything else. He's trending up amazing uh, 20 years. And uh, at the end of that 20 years, he is riding high, and the future looks Right. That's how chapter 10 ends. Chapter 11 starts with a big however. In fact, let's call it a huge however. And the question I have for you, have you ever things been going really well for you and then you hit a huge however? Well, he hits a huge however. You have your Bible's apps. Open up to uh, 1 Kings chapter 11. We're going to look at a huge however that's going to change the course of this narrative. So, chapter 11. We just, we just finished chapter 10, right? It was kind of pretty much close to the end of the chapter 10. We go into chapter 11. King Solomon, What? However, <laughs> here comes the huge however. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. You always have to watch those foreign women. Right? That's just kidding. No, that's just kidding. Uh, what's he talking about? Back in chapter 3, at the very start of his reign, before God even shows up that first time, that Solomon uh, makes a decision that he, if he's going to safeguard his kingdom, he needs to enter into alliances, military political alliances, with the surrounding nations. And so his first military political alliance is with the major superpower of the day, most important alliance, 
with the, the nation of Egypt to the south, one of their perennial enemies. And so he enters into this military alliance, and in that day, the way you would often submit an alliance, a political, is by marrying a daughter of the king. You, you kind of intermarry. Uh, and so he enters into this. Now, the problem with this is that the word was super clear. Uh, Moses had said, when you go in the promised land, do not intermarry with foreign nations. And he gave not only the command, but the reason. He said, the reason is, is because if you marry foreign wives, you're going to be tempted to worship their gods. And it's going to turn your heart away from, the, from Yahweh, and it'll compromise your loyalty, and you'll break covenant, like spiritual adultery. Like, you're going to break covenant, and then you're going to bring God's curse on the nation. And so Solomon knows this, right? But Solomon decides to compromise very early on. And I'm sure that he had the best of reasons, the best of intentions. I'm sure he's like, hey, this is what we have to do to secure the safeguard, the nation, right? And I'm sure he's thinking, and I can handle this. I know what the word says, but I can handle, I love Yahweh, I serve Yahweh. I would never let a wife turn my heart away. So early on, he makes this compromise. But this first compromise is going to lead to many more compromises, which often happens when we compromise. And so he, start, he says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. He married her back in 1 Kings 3, 1. And so he said, these are the nations surrounding Israel, the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians. So he's got this, he's got this growing harem if you will, of princesses from foreign kings that uh, he's building up. And uh, now the author of Kings wants to explain the huge however. <laughs> and he wants to make sure that we don't miss how lame this is. So if in the Hebrew, there was like a Hebrew study Bible, it would be a little footnote that would say, bonehead move, right here. <laughs> and so he throws in this editorial footnote, and verse two, uh, they were the nations about which the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, these are the nations which Yahweh had told the Israelites, super clear, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after other gods. Nevertheless, Solomon kind of um, runs through this barrier. Uh, he compromises and he held fast to them in love. He held on to these relationships. And so remember what I said that in our lives, compromise one often leads to another? Well, here's a great example. He had 700 wives of royal birth, 700 princesses. And because that's an awkward number, he wants to round it out. And so he has 300 concubines. Now, if you're new at this, a concubine is sort of like a mistress, right? So she's, she's someone you're going to sleep with but not be married to. And so this rounds it out to a thousand. His harem has a thousand. Now, I'm sure this is a symbolic number. I'm sure he doesn't stop with like, you know, 
999, I just need one more. I mean, like he, he wants a thousand. This goes with his rep, right? He's rich. He's wise. You, you have like, and man, he has a harem with a thousand women. It's funny, you know, when I'm in Israel, I become friends with, um, with our guide over there, Ronan. A lot of you, you know him. And he loves telling me the story when he was a little boy and he'd be learning this in the Hebrew scriptures that he would ask his dad, like, hey, a thousand wives, that's a lot of, that's a lot of women in your, in your life. And his father would say, yeah, can you imagine? Every morning he'd get up and say, thanks, honey, that was really special. I'll see you in three years. And, uh, anyway. So here's what I want you to catch. Uh, what I want you to catch is that that when Solomon makes this compromise, at first he seems to get away with it. I know, and this is the way compromise often is. Often we make a compromise. We don't see anything that seems to change right away. And so we tend to assume, well, hey, maybe it's not that big of a deal. And so the warning was, if you marry foreign wives, they'll turn your heart. He has a thousand of them now, and his heart's not turned. He's still loyal to Yahweh. He's not worshiping other gods. And so he gets away with this for a while, but notice as in, in verse four that this begins to catch up with him. So as Solomon grew old, so catch that. So we don't know like how old, but we're in between 20 and 40 years of his reign now. So as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, just what Moses had warned. And his heart was not fully devoted to Yahweh his God as the heart of David his father had been. Now, the question is, well, who are these new gods he's importing um, and, and, and kind of bringing into the pantheon of worship, so to speak, of Israel? Well, the first one is Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. So who's Ashtoreth? Well, Ashtoreth was the wife or the consort of the, the god Baal. And so some of you recognize that name. We'll, we'll meet Baal later in the series. But, uh, but Ashereth, uh, so she is a fertility goddess, both Baal and Ashereth are. She's a fertility goddess, so she's a goddess of sex and war. Okay, so this kind of makes sense. If you have a thousand wives, you'd start with her. But he followed Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians, but he also follows Molech, and then the author describes him as the detestable god of the Ammonites, one of their eastern neighbors. And so Molech, when you'd worship Molech, it, Molech required that you'd, it was called passing your sons through the fire. And so Molech was a god that required child sacrifice. So you'd offer your sons Maybe your first son, we're not, we're not clear exactly all the details, but you would offer your son as a burnt offering. You burn your baby alive so that uh, then Molech would bless your life. And so he begins to, to worship Molech as well. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of Yahweh, um, and he did not follow Yahweh completely. So catch this, he's still worshiping Yahweh, but he's also in a sense, serving these other gods. And so on, in verse seven, on a hill east of Jerusalem, so this would be what we most likely is what we call today the Mount of Olives. So if you, again, if you've been to Israel, you've seen pictures, you look down on the Dome of the Rock down below, you've seen that beautiful kind of shot from the Mount of Olives. And so on the hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon builds a high place, a place of worship, 
for Chemosh, the detestable God of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable God of the Ammonites. And he did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their God. So I want you to catch this. We, we have gone from Solomon who early in his reign says, I can't even, I don't, I don't even know if I'm up to this task. God, would you help me? Would you give me a listening heart? Would you give me a discerning heart? And God says, yes, and I'll bless you. Not just that, I'll bless you in every way. And we're now like 20, 30 years down the line. And Solomon has gone from a God who, who builds the temple and the fire of God falls. And he prays this incredible prayer where you come and meet us here. Will this be a place of your presence? Will you put your name here? Will this be the place where you meet with us, God, our hearts are seeking you, and the Holy Spirit fills the temple. He's gone from that guy to a guy who is building pagan worship sites overlooking the temple. And so the Lord became, verse 9, became angry with Solomon. Talk about an understatement. Think of how he's blessed this guy. And now what he does with that blessing, like he's now using the gold, the silver, his power to build pagan worship sites, to introduce pagan worship to Israel, violating the very covenant that is their marriage vows to Yahweh. And so the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, God, Solomon did not keep Yahweh's command. And so Yahweh said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and since you've not kept my covenant, remember with Mount Sinai, I will be your God, you will be my people, which I commanded you, I will most certainly, I promise, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I'll tear it out of the hand of your son, yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And so this prophecy, this promise will be fulfilled after Solomon dies, there will be essentially like a civil war in Israel. And the northern 10 tribes will rebel against the southern king of uh, uh, Jerusalem. And so uh, it will be essentially like a civil war. Like in our country, you have the north versus the south. But, but unlike our country, it will never come back together. It'd be like if during our civil wars, let's say the south won and they permanently seceded. And there'd be two different, we wouldn't be the United States, we would be something else, we'd be disunited states. That's what happened, that's what happened in Israel. That the 10 northern tribes pulled away, came up with their own king, their own set of uh, worship and religion, uh, separate from the southern kingdom of Judah and also the tribe of Benjamin. Um, and, and they'll become like two different histories. So then from this point on, we're entering into what we call the divided kingdom era. Up to this point, we've been the united kingdom. Saul, uh, Saul, David, Solomon. But from this point on, divided. And those two kingdoms are like two different nations. And they will never again come back together because of this disastrous leadership and fall on, in the life of of Solomon as he led the nation into this rebellion. 
And so what I want to do in this amazing story today is I want to highlight two big picture principles that are just so critical for us to understand as followers of Jesus for our lives that flow out of this passage. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called Solomon's Rise and Fall, The Life Principles. Let's jump in. The first one, very simple. Compromise kills. Compromise kills. You know, about five weeks ago, I think it was, we, I did a message here in our last year, Second Corinthians Metamorphosis. And, and, it, and I introduced this principle that I share with you. I think it's the most important, or at least one of the most important spiritual principles of our life. And it was, I called it the dimmer switch principle. Do you remember that? And it was very simple. It's that when we, re, when we respond to the light that God gives us, the truth that God reveals, and we, we respond, we listen and follow, that God gives us more light, more insight, more understanding. But when we reject the light that God gives, because we don't like what it reveals, we don't like what it requires, that we lose the very light and truth we have. If I had to pick one character from all the Bible to be the poster child for the dimmer switch, it would be Solomon. I mean, how can you, this guy who starts off in Gibeon, God, I don't know what to do. I don't feel up to the task. Give me a hearing heart. Give me the wisdom to lead well. And God says, yes, I will. I'll, I'll give you that. I'll give you everything else as well. And he blesses him with wisdom, catches as measureless as the sand of the sea. Uh, this man who has given so much light ends up building pagan worship centers where you burn your babies in the fire to other gods. Talk about losing the light you had. And you ask the question, how does that happen? How is this even possible? And I would give you one word as an answer. And that word is compromise. And compromise was the fatal flaw that led to his destruction and the downfall of the nation. And of course, this starts early in his reign, right? We watch this as he decides to marry this first foreign princess, the woman from uh, Egypt. And you know, the reality is, as I mentioned before, that if you were there at the time, this kind of makes sense. Like you, you want to ensure the peace of your nation. And so you, you want to enter into treaty with your most powerful opponent, with Egypt. And the, but the, the reality is, is that the word was super clear. This is why the author of Kings, out after the however, puts this big uh, kind of neon light, uh, hey, bonehead move, verse two. Like this is why he's doing it. I mean, he's taken time over chapter three through 10 to tell you the amazing story of King Solomon. His rise to power over 20 years, how God was blessing him at every level. The people of the world are coming to him just to hear his wisdom. You say, how did that happen? And the author of First Kings says, let me tell you, however... And this compromise started early. But as I pointed out, often when we compromise, we don't realize what we have just done. It's not like you compromise and then you wake up the next morning and you go like, oh, my life is completely different. What happens is we compromise and say, well, that didn't feel so bad. 
And we don't realize that compromise begins to change us. It's like a seed planted in the soil of our soul that begins to grow and begins to take over our life. This made perfect sense to him. He knew what the word said. He was clear on that. But I'm sure his mind went something like this. I know what the word says, but that's for most people. That's not for me. I'm a king, and this is how kings make alliances. And so I'm sure it's a good general principle for most people, but I'm not most people. I'm the king, and my job is to protect this nation. So I'm sure that this will work, and I'm sure God will understand. And after all I have experienced with God, uh, I know I will be loyal to him. I The reason God said don't do this is because it will turn your heart, but I think I can handle this. I am loyal. I know Yahweh. I would never in a million years. But what Solomon didn't understand is that compromise changes us. Compromise changes at a core level of our character. It changes us. And one compromise tends to lead to another and the dimmer switch starts getting dim until we wake up doing things we never thought in a million years could happen. And isn't this true in our lives? That the path of Solomon is the path of temptation for us that we know what the word says in the area, but we think, well, I know what it says, but in my situation, I think this will work out. I don't think it's that big a deal. I think I'm the exception. I know others who have done it. I, think it, I, think, I don't think it's that big a deal. I think God will be okay. I jotted down some illustrations. You can multiply this. We could stay here all day, multiply, but just three, three different kinds of illustrations. Let's say you're single, right? You're single, and so, you really are praying that God would bring you a spouse. You, there's, so you, you want to someone to share your life with, and it's just eating at you, and you're a follower of Jesus, and you want to marry someone who loves Jesus and shares that commitment, but the fact of the matter is it can't seem to find anyone, and it's get frustrating. You've been praying for a long time. Your friends are praying. Your mother's always been praying. Uh, <laughs> No one is coming along. And so you meet this guy or you meet this girl and they seem nice and you talk to them and you're you're drawn to them. They seem to have their act together. Yeah, they're not maybe a believer, but they do believe in God at least. And they're not like anti. And so you know what the word says. Don't be unequally yoked. Like you know what it says. And it says, hey, guard your heart because out of it flow the wellsprings of life. You know what it says. But you think, you know what? God's not providing this other way. Maybe this would be okay. Maybe it's not that bad. Maybe God will use me to lead them. You work in an industry, you're working a business, a company where everyone cheats, everyone lies, everyone cuts corners. And you look around and you know what the word says about our integrity and our honesty and that a good name is more important than riches and honor. A good name, a sense of character is more important. And you know that. But you look around and you say, I'm afraid 
that if I play by the rules, if I'm honest, if I don't shade the truth, if I don't lie, I won't, I will not succeed here. And I know God has called me to provide for my family, and I know he wouldn't want me to lose this job, and I know he wouldn't want me not to succeed. And so I, I think just in this one area, I, I'm going to need to compromise a little bit. I mean, everyone does it, and I'm sure it, it'll work out, and God will understand. The couples, like we want to get married. We love one another. We want to get married, but we just can't afford it. And we don't know what to do. And we don't see it changing. So we're going to move in together. We'll save some money. We know what the Bible says. So we know it's not maybe right. But we have a lot of friends who claim to be Christians who are, who are, not, who are sexually active. And, and, and we live in a different day and age. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to get married anyway. You see how this works? We know what the Word says. We know what the Spirit's telling us. But... But we begin to, like Solomon, say, yeah, but I'm not sure it applies to me and this situation. And I'm not sure that I think this will work. And I, I think I'm kind of the exception. And I, maybe it's not that big a deal. But the reality is, is that it changes us. And over time, like Solomon, we lose ourselves, and the light gets dimmer, and we end up saying and doing things that we never would have imagined in a million years. Number two. Number two, the second principle goes like this, that God's word waiting for the slow flippers. Um, God's word is the gift of guardrails. God's word to us is what I call today the gift of guardrails. And you say, what do you mean the gift of guardrails? We all know what guardrails are, right? Uh, like almost every day of my life, I drive down Santa Susana Pass. It's a scary road. And if you've ever come down there, you'll notice the, there's guardrails, right? There's like metal that's all mangled, burned, um, looks like signs, people died here. Um, and recently they put up a new guardrail, a uh, nice silver one, um, that, until it got graffiti, but it's, uh, and we understand what a guardrail does, right? We understand, like here's what a guardrail does. A guardrail does two things. It directs and it protects. Right? So a guardrail directs. When you see a guardrail, a guardrail is like an unofficial sign saying, don't go here. Like a guardrail is like, hey, the road is bending, and you need to go the opposite direction. Like if you want to stay on track, you don't want to have an accident, you want to go off track, you need, it directs you, but it also protects you. A guardrail is a warning. If you go off here, you're not going to get where you want, and uh, in certain cities, it could be very dangerous. You could find yourself, like on Santa Susana, careening over and killing yourself. So a guardrail is designed to direct and to protect. And here's what I want to suggest. That in our lives, this is the gift of God's word to us. A guardrail, uh, God's word is a guardrail to direct us in the path to life and to protect us from ruining our life. A guardrail is not designed to restrict us. It's designed to protect 
and direct. And you see that in Solomon's life, right? This is why the author of Kings makes such a big deal about the guardrail. So obviously, would you agree with me that obviously God wants to bless Solomon? That he just, he loves this kid. He said to David, I'll be a father to him. He'll be a son to me. And from the very beginning, he goes to him, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. I mean, that is the only time in all the Bible I remember anyone being offered that. Like, that is blessing. And when he, when he says, I want a discerning heart, I'll give you that. I'll throw in wealth. I'll throw in fame. I'll throw in power of your enemies. If you keep on following, I'll throw in long life. Like, God is all for him. But God had put a guardrail in to direct him and to protect him. And the guardrail is don't marry foreign wives. So turn your heart. But does he listen? No, he chooses to ignore it. But here's what I want you to catch. This is not the only example of Solomon ignoring guardrails, meant to direct and protect. In fact, um, back in Deuteronomy 17, which uh, was written about 500 years before Solomon's life, uh, Moses was still alive. He's about to die. He writes the book of Deuteronomy, his final speeches to Israel before they go in the promised land. He says, when you go in the promised land, there's going to come a time in the future, not now, but there's going to come a time when you're going to want to be, have a king like the other nations. And when you do, here are some guardrails. Here's what to do. Here's not what to do so that the king will be successful. So let's read through this. So on your note sheet, when you enter the land that Yahweh your God has given you, you've taken possession of it, you've settled in it, so you moved in the promised land, and you say, let us set a king over us like the nations around us. You know, which has happened when King Saul came to power. Be sure to appoint over you a king that Yahweh your God chooses. Catch this. Here's criteria number one. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you who is not an Israelite. So rule number one of guardrail. So let's picture, God's going to give like a checklist for kings here, all right? So imagine those little boxes like you have in a checklist. And so the first checklist is he has to be an Israelite. So does Solomon meet the criteria? Yes, from the tribe of Judah, check mark, okay? Now it's going to go downhill from this point. Okay, so next, the king, the next check mark. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. How many did he have? Yeah, 12,000. I think that qualifies as a great number. Um, Or he should not make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. Uh, Wait a second, how do you do with that one? No, he went to Egypt and coup. He says, because Yahweh told you, you're not to go back that way. I don't want you going back to Egypt again. Okay, next check mark. He must not take many wives. Now, I don't know how many is many. But I'm thinking 700 is probably too many. Okay, next. Uh, He says, and the reason are his heart will be led astray. Huh. So next check mark, he must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. Uh, remember like, the, like stones on the street, the silver? And the, the issue here, by the way, is not just how much you have, but how you acquire it. We didn't go into this, but for his big building projects, 
Solomon's head starts getting big. He wants to do these amazing projects. So he has to make slaves of uh, Canaanites in the land of over 100,000 slaves. And he conscripts, drafts 30,000 Israelis to work where they have to work four months a year on his building project. And so, uh, so those are some things he's not supposed to do. Here are some guardrails of what he should do. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself, okay, write his own copy on a scroll of the copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priest. So we're living in a day where you, know, you can't just like download a version of the Bible. So you gotta write it out, just write his own copy. When you write your own copy, you get familiar with it. So write your own copy and it's to be with him and he's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere Yahweh as God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and do not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, like with heavy taxation, like conscripting people and so on. And turn from the law to the right or the left and catch this, then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So here in Deuteronomy, if he had been reading the word, if, he'd, if he had written out his own copy, and if he's reading the word daily, do you think he may have avoided some of these mistakes? But he didn't. And here's what I want you to catch. The word is given to us, to you and I as followers of Jesus. The word of God is given not to restrict us. It's given to direct us and to protect us. And when we ignore it and we compromise, it's to our demise. Now, this leads to an important question. There you know, Chief, the fatal flaw, one key question. And as I ask this question, what I'd like you to do is, is I, I want you to begin to seek the Holy Spirit. Because uh, remember we read in Psalm 139 this last week in our life group study, it ends with, search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there's any evil way in me. And the reality is when we have compromise in our life, the dimmer switch does go down, which makes us sort of a dim bulb. And when that happens, what happens is we can ask ourselves important questions like I'm about to ask you, and we don't even have the capacity to answer it. Because like Solomon, we've gotten so blind to the truth, we miss the obvious. And so as I ask this question, I wanna challenge you, whether it's here, this weekend, this week, to go before the Lord and to ask this question, but to ask the Lord to search you and reveal the truth so that you don't just give a flippant answer and maybe miss what's really there. But the question is this, are there areas where you are compromising? Are there areas in your life where you are compromising? We've seen today that compromise kills. It changes us at a core level. The dimmer switch goes down. One compromise tends to lead to the next and we can end up driving our life through the guardrails and over the cliff. And so the question is, is that as a follower of Jesus today, are you compromising in any area? Now, it could be in like our relationship with God. Like, like God has said to Solomon, copy out the word and read it every day so that you know the path to life. And, and he had compromised that. 
For some of us here, the Holy Spirit may be calling you or have called you in the past to alter your schedule and to make spending time with God a priority in your life and to develop a regular rhythm of relationship where you're praying and you're processing your life with God and you're spending time in his word and you're journaling and you're processing life and so that you are aware of the guard rules. See, one of the biggest challenges for us, if, we don't, if we're not in the word, we don't even know what the guard rules are. The word may be speaking loud and clear, we're just not in it, so it's easy for us to ignore it, we don't even know it. And so for some of us here, I'm not saying everyone, I'm not putting this on you, I'm just saying for some of us here, chances are the Lord has been calling you to change your schedule and to seek the face of the Lord and to spend time in his word so your mind can be renewed and you can be transformed and experience the will of God, which is good and pleasing and perfect. But you have been compromising, you've been ignoring what the Lord is saying, and as a result, you're driving through guardrails and your life is headed for disaster. You're gonna end up down the path doing things, making decisions you never dreamed you would, would do, and the reason is you've compromised your priorities. Now, I'm not saying that's true of you. I'm just saying I'm sure it's true of some of us here. So it may be in your relationship with the Lord. It may be in your relationship with others. Some of you are in a relationship. The Lord, like Solomon, told you a long time ago, you should not be in this relationship. They're turning your heart away from Yahweh. And one of Solomon's brighter, clearer moments, he wrote in chapter four of Proverbs, guard your heart with all diligence for out of it flows the wellsprings of life. And you have not guarded your heart. And you're compromising. And it's going to lead to that. For some of you are in a relationship, the Holy Spirit's been telling you for a long time, you should not be here. For some of us, it may be an area of our character, our, our obedience to the area. He's talked to us about forgiveness. It's about bitterness. It's about integrity. And we've been compromising. For some, it may be an area of sexuality. It could be in the area of our finances, our priorities. It could be in the area of ministry, like God has been calling you to involve yourself in ministry, to use the gifts he's given you or maybe to share Jesus with your colleagues or a friend or a relative, and he's been calling you, but out of fear of failure or a lack of priority, you've not engaged in that ministry. Your gifts are lying dormant. You're not sharing that message of Jesus. He's calling you to share, and as a result of this compromise, the dimmer switch is going down in your life, and you're losing God's vision for your life. For some of us, it could be in the area of entertainment, where God, the Holy Spirit's been telling you, stop watching that show. Stop listening to that music. You're compromising who you are. It's like a cancer in your life. Get rid of that porn. Go a different direction. It's like acid for your soul. It's eating away at you. You can't hear my voice and be growing when you're embracing pornography. And so many times, whether it's our relationship with him, our relationship with others, character issues, 
what we do is we knew what the word says. We know what the word says. But we convince ourselves, I think in this case, it's okay if I marry this foreign princess. I think I can handle it. And I'm sure God understands. And he's good with it. And we end up driving through the guardrails of life to either damage or even destroy our life. And we end up doing things that we never in a million years could have ever imagined. And so the question is, are there areas of your life where you're compromising? Where the word is clear, the Holy Spirit's calling, but you're saying no. And the warning is, don't be a Solomon. You ask yourself, how can someone who is so smart become so stupid? It doesn't happen overnight. It happens with compromise, it leads to another, and all of a sudden, this man who is pursuing God with all his heart is building worship sites for pagan gods and leading the nation to disaster. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you as a church, we just want to come and, well, we just want to acknowledge we all have this natural tendency to compromise, to make excuses, to say we're the exception, to rationalize why this is okay, and just not even realize that in doing that, we're running through the guardrails of your word and your spirit and destroying our lives. And so, Father, we pray that you'd help us to honestly come before you. And if there's any area where we are compromising, that you would help us to lay it down so that we can stay on track and move into the future that you have for us. And so, Father, we pray that as we worship, as we bring our tithes, our gifts and offering, whatever it is that's holding us back, we would lay it down before it's too late. And we pray this in your name. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand with me?